Beyond Good and Evil by Friedrich Nietzsche Preface, read by Hugh McGuire Supposing that truth is a woman, what then? Is there not ground for suspecting that all philosophers, insofar as they have been dogmatist, have failed to understand women, that the terrible seriousness and clumsy inopportunity with which they have usually paid their addresses to truth have been unskilled and unseemly methods for winning a woman. Certainly she has never allowed herself to be won, and at present every kind of dogma stands with a sad and discouraged mien, if indeed it stands at all. For there are scoffers who maintain that it has fallen, that all dogma lies on the ground, nay more, that it is at its last gasp. But to speak seriously, there are good grounds for hoping that all dogmatizing in philosophy, whatever solemn, whatever conclusive and decided airs it has assumed, may have been only a noble pluralism and tyrannism, and probably the time is at hand when it will be once and again understood what has actually sufficed for the basis of such imposing and absolute philosophical edifices as the dogmatists have hitherto reared. Perhaps some popular superstition of immemorial time, such as the soul superstition, which, in the form of subject and ego superstition, has not yet ceased doing mischief. Perhaps some play upon words, a deception on the part of grammar, or an audacious generalization of very restricted, very personal, very human, all too human facts. The philosophy of the dogmatists, it is to be hoped, was only a promise for thousands of years afterwards, as was astrology in still earlier times, in the service of which probably more labor, gold, acuteness, and patience have been spent than on any actual science hitherto. We owe to it, and to its superterrestrial pretensions in Asia and Egypt, the grand style of architecture. It seems that in order to inscribe themselves upon the heart of humanity with everlasting claims, all great things have first to wander about the earth as enormous and awe-inspiring caricatures. Dogmatic philosophy has been a caricature of this kind. For instance, the Vedanta doctrine in Asia and Platonism in Europe. Let us not be ungrateful to it, although it must certainly be confessed that the worst, the most tiresome, and the most dangerous of errors hitherto has been a dogmatist error, namely Plato's invention of pure spirit and the good in itself. But now when it has been surmounted, when Europe, rid of this nightmare, can again draw breath freely and at least enjoy a healthier sleep, we, whose duty is wakefulness itself, are the heirs of all the strength which the struggle against this error has fostered. It amounted to the very inversion of truth and the denial of the perspective, the fundamental condition of life, to speak of spirit and the good as Plato spoke of them. Indeed, one might ask as a physician, how did such a malady attack the finest product of antiquity, Plato? 
Had the wicked Socrates really corrupted him? Was Socrates, after all, a corrupter of youths, and deserved his hemlock? But the struggle against Plato, or, to speak plainer, and for the people, the struggle against the ecclesiastical oppression of millenniums of Christianity, for Christianity is Platonism for the people, produced in Europe a magnificent tension of soul, such as had not existed anywhere previously. With such a tensely strained bow, one can now aim at the furthest goals. As a matter of fact, the European feels this tension as a state of distress, and twice attempts have been made in grand style to unbend the bow, once by means of Jesuitism, and the second time by means of democratic enlightenment, which, with the aid of liberty of the press and newspaper reading, might, in fact, bring it about that the spirit would not so easily find itself in distress. The Germans invented gunpowder, all credit to them, but they again made things square, they invented printing. But we, who are neither Jesuits, nor Democrats, nor even sufficiently Germans, we good Europeans, and free, very free spirits, we have it still, all the distress of spirit and all the tension of its bow, and perhaps also the arrow, the duty, and who knows, the goal to aim at. Written in Sils Maria, Upper Engadine, June 1885. End of preface. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Beyond Good and Evil by Friedrich Nietzsche. Chapter 1 Prejudices of Philosophers. Read by Hugh Maguire. 1. The will to truth, which is to tempt us to many a hazardous enterprise the famous truthfulness of which all philosophers have hitherto spoken with respect. What questions has this will to truth not laid before us? What strange, perplexing, questionable questions? It is already a long story, yet it seems as if it were hardly commenced. Is it any wonder if we at last grow distrustful, lose patience, and turn impatiently away? that the Sphinx teaches us at last to ask questions ourselves. Who is it really that puts questions to us here? What really is this will to truth in us? In fact, we made a long halt at the questions as to the origin of this will, until at last we came to an absolute standstill before a yet more fundamental question. We inquired about the value of this will. Granted that we want the truth, why not rather untruth and uncertainty, even ignorance? The problem of the value of truth presented itself before us. Or was it we who presented ourselves before the problem? Which of us is the Oedipus here, which the Sphinx? It would seem to be a rendezvous of questions and notes of interrogation. 
and could it be believed that it at last seems to us as if the problem had never been propounded before, as if we were the first to discern it, get a sight of it, and risk raising it. For there is risk in raising it, perhaps there is no greater risk. 2. How could anything originate out of its opposite? For example, truth out of error, or the will to truth out of the will to deception, or the generous deed out of selfishness, or the pure sunbright vision of the wise man out of covetousness. Such genesis is impossible. Whoever dreams of it is a fool, nay, worse than a fool. Things of the highest value must have a different origin, an origin of their own. In this transitory, seductive, illusory, paltry world, in this turmoil of delusion and cupidity, they cannot have their source, but rather in the lap of being, in the intransitory, in the concealed God, in the thing in itself, there must be their source, and nowhere else. This mode of reasoning discloses the typical prejudice by which metaphysicians of all times can be recognized. This mode of valuation is at the back of all their logical procedure. Through this belief of theirs, they exert themselves for their knowledge, for something that is, in the end, solemnly christened the truth. The fundamental belief of metaphysicians is the belief in antithesis of values. It never occurred even to the wariest of them to doubt here on the very threshold where doubt, however, was most necessary. Though they had made a solemn vow, de omnibus dubitandum, for it may be doubted, firstly, whether antithesis exists at all, and secondly, whether the popular valuations and antithesis of value upon which metaphysicians have set their seal are not perhaps merely superficial estimates, merely provisional perspectives, besides being probably made from some corner, perhaps from below, frog perspectives as it were, to borrow an expression current among painters. In spite of all the value which may belong to the true, the positive, and the unselfish, it might be possible that a higher and more fundamental value for life generally should be assigned to pretense, to the will to delusion, to selfishness and cupidity. It might even be possible that what constitutes the value of those good and respected things consists precisely in their being insidiously related, knotted, and crotcheted to these evil and apparently opposed things perhaps even in being essentially identical with them, perhaps. But who wishes to concern himself with such dangerous perhapses? For that investigation one must await the advent of a new order of philosophers, such as will have other tastes and inclinations, the reverse of those hitherto prevalent, philosophers of the dangerous perhaps, in every sense of the term. And to speak in all seriousness, I see such new philosophers beginning to appear. 3. Having kept a sharp eye on philosophers and having read between their lines long enough, I now say to myself that the greater part of conscious thinking must be counted among the instinctive functions. And it is so even in the case of philosophical thinking. One has here to learn anew, as one learned anew about heredity and innateness, as little as the act of birth comes into consideration in the whole process and procedure of heredity, just as little is being, being conscious. A 
opposed to the instinctive in any decisive sense. The greater part of the conscious thinking of a philosopher is secretly influenced by his instincts and forced into definite channels. And behind all logic and its seeming sovereignty of movement, there are valuations, or to speak more plainly, physiological demands for the maintenance of a definite mode of life, for example, that the certain is worth more than the uncertain, that the illusion is less valuable than the truth. Such valuations, in spite of their regulative importance for us, might notwithstanding be only superficial valuations, special kinds of maiserie, such as may be necessary for the maintenance of beings such as ourselves, supposing in effect that man is not just the measure of things. 4. The falseness of an opinion is not for us any objection to it. It is here, perhaps, that our new language sounds most strangely. The question is, how far an opinion is life furthering, life persevering, species persevering, perhaps species rearing? And we are fundamentally inclined to maintain that the falsest opinions to which the synthetic judgments a priori belong are the most indispensable to us, that without a recognition of logical fictions, without a comparison of reality with the purely imagined world of the absolute and immutable, without a constant counterfeiting of the world by means of numbers, man could not live, that the renunciation of false opinions would be a renunciation of life, a negation of life, to recognize untruth as a condition of life, that is certainly to impunge the traditional ideas of value in a dangerous manner, and a philosophy which ventures to do so has thereby alone placed itself beyond good and evil. 5. That which causes philosophers to be regarded half distrustfully and half mockingly is not the oft-repeated discovery how innocent they are, how often and easily they make mistakes and lose their way, in short, how childish and childlike they are but that there is not enough honest dealing with them, whereas they all raise a loud and virtuous outcry when the problem of truthfulness is even hinted at in the remotest manner. They all pose as though their real opinions had been discovered and attained through the self-evolving of a cold, pure, divinely indifferent dialectic, in contrast to all sorts of mystics who, fairer and foolisher, talk of inspiration. Whereas in fact, a prejudiced proposition, idea, or suggestion, which is generally their heart's desire, abstracted and refined, is defended by them with arguments sought out after the event. They are all advocates who do not wish to be regarded as such, generally astute defenders also of their prejudices, which they dub truths, and very far from having the conscience which bravely admits this to itself very far from having the good taste of the courage, which goes so far as to let this be understood, perhaps to warm friend or foe, or in cheerful confidence and self-ridicule. The spectacle of the tartuffery of old Kant, equally stiff and decent, with which he entices us into the dialectic byways that lead, more correctly mislead, to his categorical imperative, makes us fastidious ones smile, 
we who find no small amusement in spying out the subtle tricks of old moralists and ethical preachers, or, still more so, the hocus-pocus in mathematical form by means of which Spinoza has, as it were, clad his philosophy in mail and mask. In fact, the love of his wisdom, to translate the term fairly and squarely, in order thereby to strike terror at once into the heart of the assailant, who should dare to cast a glance on the invincible maiden, that palace Athene? How much of personal timidity and vulnerability does this masquerade of a sickly recluse betray? 6. It has gradually become clear to me what every great philosophy up till now has consisted of, namely the confession of its originator and a species of involuntary and unconscious autobiography, and moreover that the moral or immoral purpose in every philosophy has constituted the true vital germ out of which the entire plant has always grown. Indeed, to understand how the abstrusest metaphysical assertions of a philosopher have been arrived at, it is always well and wise to first ask oneself, what morality do they, or does he, aim at? Accordingly, I do not believe that an impulse to knowledge is the father of philosophy, but that another impulse, here as elsewhere, has only made use of knowledge, and mistaken knowledge, as an instrument. But whoever considers the fundamental impulses of man with a view to determining how far they may have here acted as inspiring jenny, or as demons and kobolds, will find that they have all practiced philosophy at one time or another, and that each one of them would have been only too glad to look upon itself as the ultimate end of existence and the legitimate lord over all other impulses. For every impulse is imperious, and as such attempts to philosophize. To be sure, in the case of scholars, in the case of really scientific men, it may be otherwise, better, if you will. There, there may really be such a thing as an impulse to knowledge, some kind of small, independent clockwork, which, when well wound up, works away industriously to that end, without the rest of the scholarly impulses taking any material part therein. The actual interests of the scholar, therefore, are generally in quite another direction. In the family, perhaps, or in money-making, or in politics. It is, in fact, almost indifferent at what point of research his little machine is placed, and whether the hopeful young worker becomes a good philologist, a mushroom specialist, or a chemist. He is not characterized by becoming this or that. In the philosopher, on the contrary, there is absolutely nothing impersonal. And above all, his morality furnishes a decided and decisive testimony as to who he is. That is to say, in what order the deepest impulses of his nature stand to each other. 7. How malicious philosophers can be! I know of nothing more stinging than the joke Epicurus took the liberty of making on Plato and Platonists. He called them Dionysio Colaces. In its original sense, and on the face of it, the word signifies flatterers of Dionysius, consequently tyrants, accessories, and lickspittles. Besides this, however, it is as much to say they are all actors there is nothing genuine about them. For Dionysio Colax was a popular name for an actor. And the latter is really 
the malignant reproach that Epicurus cast upon Plato. He was annoyed by the grandiose manner, the mise-en-scene style of which Plato and his scholars were masters, of which Epicurus was not a master. He, the old-school teacher of Samos, who sat concealed in his little garden at Athens, and wrote three hundred books, perhaps out of rage and ambitious envy of Plato. Who knows? Greece took a hundred years to find out who the garden god Epicurus really was. Did she ever find out? 8. There is a point in every philosophy at which the conviction of the philosopher appears on the scene, or, to put it in the words of the ancient mystery, aventavit asinos pulcher e fortissimus. 9. You desire to live according to nature. Oh, you noble Stoics, what fraud of words! Imagine to yourselves indifference as a power. How could you live in accordance with such indifference? To live? Is not that just endeavoring to be otherwise than this nature? Is not living valuing, preferring, being unjust, being limited, endeavoring to be different? And granted that your imperative, living according to nature, means actually the same as living according to life, how could you do differently? Why should you make a principle out of what you yourselves are and must be? In reality, however, it is quite otherwise with you. While you pretend to read with rapture the canon of your law in nature, you want something quite contrary, you extraordinary stage players and self-deluders. In your pride you wish to dictate your morals and ideals to nature, to nature herself, and to incorporate them therein. You insist that it shall be nature according to the Stoa, and would like everything to be made after your own image, as a vast eternal glorification and generalism of Stoicism. With all your love for truth, you have forced yourselves so long, so persistently, and with such hypnotic rigidity to see nature falsely, that is to say, stoically, that you are no longer able to see it otherwise. And to crown all, some unfathomable superciliousness gives you the Bellamite hope that because you are able to tyrannize over yourselves, Stoicism is self-tyranny, nature will also allow herself to be tyrannized over. Is not the Stoic a part of nature? But this is an old and everlasting story. What happened in old times with the Stoics still happens today. As soon as ever a philosophy begins to believe in itself, it always creates the world in its own image. It cannot do otherwise. Philosophy is this tyrannical impulse itself, the most spiritual will to power, the will to creation of the world, the will to causa prima. 10. The eerness and subtlety. I should even say craftiness, with which the problem of the real and the apparent world is dealt with at present throughout Europe, furnishes food for thought and attention. And he who hears only a will to truth in the background and nothing else cannot certainly boast of the sharpest ears. In rare and isolated cases it may really have happened that such a will to truth, a certain extravagant and adventurous pluck, a metaphysician's ambition of the forlorn hope has participated therein that which in the end always prefers a handful of certainty to a whole cartload of beautiful possibilities 
There may even be puritanical fanatics of conscience who prefer to put their last trust in a sure nothing, rather than in an uncertain something. But that is nihilism, and the sign of a despairing, morally wearied soul, notwithstanding the courageous bearing such a virtue may display. It seems, however, to be otherwise with stronger and livelier thinkers, who are still eager for life. In that they side against appearance, and speak superciliously of perspective, in that they rank the credibility of their own bodies about as low as the credibility of the ocular evidence that the earth stands still, and thus, apparently, allowing with complacency their securest possession to escape. For what does one at present believe in more firmly than in one's body? Who knows if they are not really trying to win back something which was formerly an even securer possession, something of the old domain of the faith of former times, perhaps the immortal soul, perhaps the old god, in short, ideas by which they could live better, that is to say, more vigorously and more joyously than by modern ideas. There is distrust of these modern ideas in this mode of looking at things, a disbelief in all that has been constructed yesterday and today. There is perhaps some slight admixture of satiety and scorn, which can no longer endure the bric-a-brac of ideas of the most varied origin, such as so-called positivism at present throws on the market. A disgust at the more refined taste at the village fair motliness and patchiness of all these reality philosophasters, in whom there is nothing either new or true except this motliness. Therein it seems to me that we should agree with those skeptical anti-realists and knowledge microscopists of the present day. Their instinct, which repels them from modern reality, is unrefuted. What do their retrograde bypaths concern us? The main thing about them is not that they wish to go back, but that they wish to get away therefrom. A little more strength, swing, courage, and artistic power, and they would be off, and not back. 11. It seems to me that there is everywhere an attempt at present to divert attention from the actual influence which Kant exercised on German philosophy, and especially to ignore prudently the value which he set upon himself. Kant was first and foremost proud of his table of categories. With it in his hand, he said, this is the most difficult thing that could ever be undertaken on behalf of metaphysics. Let us only understand this could be. He was proud of having discovered a new faculty in man, the faculty of synthetic judgment a priori. Granting that he deceived himself in this matter, the development and rapid flourishing of German philosophy depended nevertheless on his pride, and on the eager rivalry of the younger generation to discover, if possible, something, at all events new faculties, of which to be still prouder. But let us reflect for a moment. It is high time to do so. How are synthetic judgments a priori possible? Kant asks himself. And what is really his answer? by means of a means, faculty. But unfortunately, not in five words, but so circumstantially, imposingly, and with such display of German profundity and verbal flourishes, that one altogether loses sight of the comical niaiserie allemande, 
involved in such an answer. People were beside themselves with delight over this new faculty, and the jubilation reached its climax when Kant further discovered a moral faculty in man. For at that time Germans were still moral, not yet dabbling in the politics of hard fact. Then came the honeymoon of German philosophy. All the young theologians of the Tübingen institution went immediately into the groves, all seeking for faculties. And what did they not find in that innocent, rich, and still youthful period of the German spirit to which romanticism, the malicious fairy, piped and sang, when one could not yet distinguish between finding and inventing? Above all, a faculty for the transcendental, Schelling christened it intellectual intuition, and thereby gratified the most earnest longings of the naturally pious inclined Germans. One can do no greater wrong to the whole of this exuberant and ecstatic movement, which was really youthfulness, notwithstanding that it disguised itself so boldly in hoary and senile conceptions, than to take it seriously, or even treat it with moral indignation. Enough, however, the world grew older, and the dream vanished. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Beyond Good and Evil by Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche. Chapter 2 The Free Spirit. 24. O sancta simplicitatis! In what strange simplification and falsification man lives! One can never cease wondering, when once one has got eyes for beholding this marvel, how we have made everything around us so clear and free and easy and simple, how we have been able to give our senses a passport to everything superficial, our thoughts a godlike desire for wanton pranks and wrong inferences, how from the beginning we have contrived to retain our ignorance in order to enjoy an almost inconceivable freedom, thoughtlessness, imprudence, hardiness, and gaiety, in order to enjoy life. And only on this solidified, granite-like foundation of ignorance could knowledge rear itself hitherto, the will to knowledge on the foundation of a far more powerful will, the will to ignorance, to the uncertain, to the untrue, not as its opposite, but as its refinement. It is to be hoped, indeed, that language, here as elsewhere, will not get over its awkwardness, and that it will continue to talk of opposites where there are only degrees and many refinements of gradation. It is equally to be hoped that the incarnated tartuffery of morals, which now belongs to our unconquerable flesh and blood, will turn the words round in the mouths of us discerning ones. Here and there we understand it, and laugh at the way in which precisely the best knowledge seeks most to retain us in this simplified, thoroughly artificial, suitably imagined, and suitably falsified world, at the way in which, whether it will or not, it loves error, because as living itself, it loves life. 25. After such a cheerful commencement, a serious word would fain be heard. It appeals to the most serious minds. Take care, you philosophers and friends of knowledge, and beware of martyrdom, of suffering for the truth's sake, even in your own defense. It spoils all the innocence and fine neutrality of your conscience. It makes you headstrong against objections and red rags. It stupefies, animalizes, and brutalizes, when in the struggle with danger, slander, suspicion, expulsion, and even worse consequence of enmity, ye have at last to play your last card as protectors of truth upon earth, 
as though the truth were such an innocent and incompetent creature as to require protectors. And you, of all people, ye knights of the sorrowful countenance, messieurs loafer and cobweb spinners of the spirit, finally ye know sufficiently well that it cannot be of any consequence if ye just carry your point. Ye know that hitherto no philosopher has carried his point, and that there might be a more laudable truthfulness in every little interrogative mark which you place after your special words and favorite doctrines, and occasionally after yourselves, than in all the solemn pantomime and trumping games before accusers and law courts. Rather go out of the way, flee into concealment, and have your masks and your ruses, that ye may be mistaken for what you are, or somewhat feared. And pray, don't forget the garden, the garden with golden trellis-work, and have people around you who are as a garden, or as music on the waters at eventide, when the day becomes a memory. Choose the good solitude, the free, wanton, lightsome solitude, which also gives you the right still to remain good in any sense whatsoever. How poisonous, how crafty, how bad does every long war make one, for which cannot be waged openly by means of force! How personal does a long fear make one, a long watching of enemies, of possible enemies, these pariahs of society, these long-pursued, badly persecuted ones, also the compulsory recluses, the Spinozas and Gordiano Brunos, always become in the end, even under the most intellectual masquerade, and perhaps without being themselves aware of it, refined vengeance-seekers and poison-brewers, just lay bare the foundations of Spinoza's ethics and theology. Not to speak of the stupidity of moral indignation, which is the unfailing sign in a philosopher, that the sense of philosophical humor has left him. The martyrdom of the philosopher, his sacrifice for the sake of truth, forces into the light whatever of the agitator and actor lurks within him. And, if one has hitherto contemplated him only with artistic curiosity, with regard to many a philosopher it is easy to understand the dangerous desire to see him also in his deterioration, deteriorated into a martyr, into a stage and tribune brawler. Only that it is necessary with such desire to be clear what spectacle one will see in any case, merely a satiric play, merely an epilogue farce, and merely continued proof that the long real tragedy is at an end supposing that every philosophy has long been a tragedy in its origin. 26. Every select man strives instinctively for a citadel and a privacy where he is free from the crowd, the many, the majority, where he may forget men who are the rule as their exception, exclusive only of the case in which he is pushed straight to such men by still stronger instinct, as a discerner in the great and exceptional sense. Whoever, in intercourse with men, does not occasionally glisten in all the green and grey colours of distress, owing to disgust, satiety, sympathy, gloominess, and solitariness, is assuredly not a man of elevated tastes. Supposing, however, that he does not voluntarily take all this burden and disgust upon himself, that he persistently avoids it and remains, as I said, quietly and proudly hidden in his citadel, one thing is then certain, he was not made, he was not predestined for knowledge. For as such he would one day have to say to himself, the devil take my good taste, but the rule is more interesting than the exception, than myself the exception. And he would go down, and above all he would go inside, the long and serious study of the average man. And consequently, much disguise, self-overcoming familiarity and bad intercourse, all intercourse is bad intercourse except with one's equals, that constitutes a necessary part of the life history of every philosopher, perhaps the most disagreeable, odious, and disappointing part. If he is fortunate, however, as a favorite child of knowledge should be, he will meet with suitable auxiliaries who will shorten and lighten his task. 
I mean so-called cynics, those who simply recognize the animal, the commonplace, and the rule in themselves, and at the same time have so much spirituality and ticklishness as to make them talk of themselves and their like before witnesses. Sometimes they wallow, even in books, as on their own dunghill. Cynicism is the only form in which base souls approach what is called honesty, and the higher man must open his ears to all the coarser or finer cynicism, and congratulate himself when the clown becomes shameless right before him, or the scientific satyr speaks out. There are even cases where enchantment mixes with the disgust, namely, where by a freak of nature, genius is bound to some indiscreet billy-goat and ape, as in the case of the Abbe Giliani, the profoundest, acutest, and perhaps also the filthiest man of his century. He was far profounder than Voltaire, and consequently, also, a good deal more silent. It happens more frequently, as has been hinted, that a scientific head is placed on an ape's body, a fine exceptional understanding in a base soul, an occurrence by no means rare, especially among doctors and moral physiologists. And whenever anyone speaks without bitterness, or rather quite innocently, of man as a belly with two requirements and a head with one, whenever anyone sees, seeks, and wants to see only hunger, sexual instinct, and vanity as the real and only motives of human actions, in short, when anyone speaks badly and not even ill of man, then ought the lover of knowledge to hearken attentively and diligently. He ought, in general, to have an open ear wherever there is talk without indignation. For the indignant man, and he who perpetually tears and lacerates himself with his own teeth, or in place of himself, the world, God, or society, may indeed, morally speaking, stand higher than the laughing and self-satisfied satyr, but in every other sense he is more ordinary, more indifferent, and less instructive case, and no one is such a liar as the indignant man. 27. It is difficult to be understood, especially when one thinks and lives Gangastrigati, footnote, like the river Ganges, presto, among those who think and live otherwise, namely Kromagati, footnote, like the tortoise, lento, or, at best, frog-like, Mandiakagati, footnote, like the frog, staccato. I do everything to be difficultly understood, myself. And one should be heartily grateful for the good will and some refinement of interpretation. As regards the good friends, however, who are always too easy-going, and think that as friends they have a right to ease, one does well at the very first to grant them a playground and romping place for misunderstanding. One can thus laugh still, or get rid of them altogether, these good friends, and laugh then also. 28. What is most difficult to render from one language into another is the tempo of its style, which has its basis in the character of the race, or to speak more physiologically, in the average tempo of the assimilation of its nutriment. There are honestly meant translations which, as involuntary vulgarizations, are almost falsifications of the original, merely because its lively and merry tempo, which overleaps and obviates all the dangers in word and expression, could not also be rendered. A German is almost incapacitated for presto in his language. Consequently also, he may be reasonably inferred for many of the most delightful and daring nuances of free, free-spirited thought. And just as the buffoon and satyr are foreign to him in body and conscience, so Aristophanes and Petronius are untranslatable for him. Everything ponderous, viscous, and pompously clumsy, all long-winded and weary species of style, are developed in profuse variety among Germans. Pardon me for stating the fact that even Goethe's prose, in its mixture of stiffness and elegance, is no exception, as a reflection of the good old time to which it belongs, and an expression of German taste at a time when there was still a German taste, which was a rococo taste in moribus et artibus, 
Lessing is an exception, owing to his histrionic nature, which understood much, and was versed in many things. He who was not the translator of Bale to no purpose, who took refuge willingly in the shadow of Diderot and Voltaire, and still more willingly among the Roman comedy writers. Lessing loved also free spiritism in the tempo and flight out of Germany. But how could the German language, even in the prose of Lessing, imitate the tempo of Machiavelli, who in his Principa makes us breathe the dry, fine air of Florence, and cannot help presenting the most serious events in a boisterous allegressimo, perhaps not without a malicious artistic sense of the contrast he ventures to present, long, heavy, difficult, dangerous thoughts, and a tempo of the gallop and of the best wantonous humor? Finally, who could venture on a German translation of Petronius, who, more than any great musician hitherto, was a master of presto in invention, ideas, and words? What matter in the end about the swamps of the sick, evil world, or of the ancient world, when, like him, one has the feet of the wind, the rush, the breath, the emancipating scorn of a wind which makes everything healthy by making everything run? And with regard to Aristophanes, that transfiguring, complementary genius, for whose sake one pardons all Hellenism for having existed, provided one has understood in its full profundity all that there requires pardon and transfiguration, there is nothing that has caused me to meditate more on Plato's secrecy and sphinx-like nature than the happily preserved petit fait that under the pillow of his deathbed there was found no Bible, nor anything Egyptian, Pythagorean, or Platonic, but a book of Aristophanes. How could even Plato have endured life, a Greek life which he repudiated, without an Aristophanes? 29. It is the business of the very few to be independent. It is a privilege of the strong, and whoever attempts it, even with the best right, but without being obliged to do so, proves that he is probably not only strong, but also daring beyond measure. He enters into a labyrinth, he multiplies a thousandfold the dangers which life in itself already brings with it not the least of which is that no one can see how and where he loses his way, become isolated, and is torn piecemeal by some minotaur of conscience. Suppose such a one comes to grief, it is so far from the comprehension of men that they neither feel it nor sympathize with it, and he can no longer go back, he cannot even go back to the sympathy of men. 30. Our deepest insights must and should appear as follies, and under certain circumstances as crimes, when they come unauthorizedly to the ears of those who are not disposed and predestined for them. The exoteric and the esoteric, as they were formerly distinguished by philosophers, among the Indians, as among the Greeks, Persians, and Mussulmans, in short, wherever people believed in gradations of rank, not in equality and equal rights, are not so much in contradistinction to one another in respect to the exoteric class, standing without and viewing, estimating, measuring, and judging from the outside, and not from the inside. The more essential distinction is that the class in question views things from below upwards, while the esoteric class view things from above downwards. There are heights of the soul from which tragedy itself no longer appears to operate tragically, and if all the woe in the world were taken together, who would dare to decide whether the sight of it would necessarily seduce and constrain to sympathy, and thus to a doubling of the woe? That which serves the higher class of men for nourishment or refreshment must also be poison to an entirely different and lower order of human beings. The virtues of the common man would perhaps mean vice and weakness in the philosopher. It might be possible for a highly developed man, supposing him to degenerate and go to ruin, to acquire qualities thereby alone, for the sake of which he would have been honored as a saint in the lower world in which he had sunk. There are books which have an inverse value for the soul, 
and the health according as the inferior soul and the lower vitality, or the higher and more powerful make use of them. In the former case they are dangerous, disturbing, and unsettling books. In the latter case there are herald calls which summon the bravest to their bravery. Books for the general reader are always ill-smelling books. The odor of paltry people clings to them. Where the populace eat and drink, and even where they reverence, it is accustomed to stink. One should not go into churches if one wishes to breathe pure air. 31. In our youthful years we still venerate and despise without the art of nuance, which is the best gain of life, and we have rightly to do hard penance for having fallen upon men and things with yea and nay. Everything is so arranged that the worst of all tastes, the taste for the unconditional, is cruelly befooled and abused, until a man learns to introduce a little art into his sentiments, and prefers to try conclusions with the artificial, as do the real artists of life. The angry and reverent spirit, peculiar to youth, appears to allow itself no peace, until it has suitably falsified men and things, to be able to vent its passion upon them. Youth in itself, even, is something falsifying and deceptive. Later on, when the young soul, tortured by continual disillusions, finally turns suspiciously against itself, still ardent and savage even in its suspicion and remorse of conscience, how it upbraids itself, how impatiently it tears itself, how it revenges itself for its long self-blinding as though it had been a voluntary blindness. In this transition one punishes oneself by distrust of one's sentiments, one tortures one's enthusiasm with doubt, one feels even the good conscience to be danger and if it were the self-concealment and lassitude of a more refined uprightness, and above all one espouses upon the principle the cause against youth, a decade later, and one comprehends that this was also still youth. 32. Throughout the longest period of human history, one calls it the prehistoric period, the value or non-value of an action was inferred from its consequence. The action in itself was not taken into consideration, any more than its origin, but pretty much as in China at present, where the distinction or disgrace of a child redounds to its parents, the retro-operating power of success or failure was what induced men to think well or ill of an action. Let us call this period the pre-moral period of mankind. The imperative, know thyself, was then still unknown. In the last ten thousand years, on the other hand, on certain large portions of the earth, one has gradually got so far that one no longer lets the consequences of an action, but its origin decide with regards to its worth. A great achievement as a whole, an important refinement of vision and criterion, the unconscious effort of the supremacy of aristocratic values and of the belief in origin, the mark of a period which, which may be designated in the narrower sense as the moral one, the first attempt at self-knowledge is thereby made. Instead of the consequence, the origin, what an inversion of perspective! And assuredly an inversion effected only after long struggle and wavering. To be sure, an ominous new superstition, a peculiar narrowness of interpretation, attained supremacy precisely thereby. The origin of an action was interpreted, in the most definite sense possible, as origin out of intention. People were agreed in the belief that the value of an action lay in the value of its intention. The intention is the sole origin and antecedent history of an action. Under the influence of this prejudice, moral praise and blame have been bestowed, and men have judged and even philosophized almost up to the present day. Is it not possible, however, that the necessity may now have arisen of again making up our minds with regards to the reversing and fundamental shifting of values, owing to a new self-consciousness and acuteness in man? 
Is it not possible that we may be standing on the threshold of a period which, to begin with, would be distinguished negatively as ultra-moral? Nowadays, when at least among us immoralists, the suspicion arises that the decisive value of an action lies precisely in that which is not intentional, and that all its intentionalness, all that is seen, sensible, or sensed in it, belongs to its surface or skin, which, like every skin, betrays something, but conceals still more. In short, we believe that the intention is only a sign or symptom which first requires an explanation, a sign, moreover, which has too many interpretations, and consequently hardly any meaning in itself alone, that morality, in the sense in which it has been understood hitherto, as intention morality, has been a prejudice, perhaps a prematureness or preliminariness, probably something of the same rank as astrology and alchemy, but in a case something which must be surmounted. The surmounting of morality, in certain sense even the self-mounting of morality, let that be the name for the long secret labor which has been reserved for the most refined, the most upright, and also the most wicked consciences of today, as the living touchstones of the soul. 33. It cannot be helped. The sentiment of surrender, of sacrifice for one's neighbor, and all self-renunciation morality, must be mercilessly called to account, and brought to judgment, just as the aesthetics of disinterested contemplation, under which the emasculation of art nowadays seeks insidiously enough to create itself good conscience. There is far too much witchery and sugar in the sentiments for others and not for myself. For one not needing to be doubly distrustful here, and, and for one asking promptly, are they not perhaps deceptions? They that please him who has them, and him who enjoys their fruit, and also the mere spectator, that is all no argument in their favor, but just calls for caution. Let us therefore be cautious. 34. At whatever standpoint of philosophy one may place oneself nowadays, seen from every position the erroneousness of the world in which we think we live is the surest and most certain thing our eyes can light upon. We find proof after proof thereof, which would fain allure us into surmises concerning a deceptive principle in the nature of things. He, however, who makes thinking itself, and consequently the spirit, responsible for the falseness of the world, an honorable exit, which every conscious or unconscious evacuatus day avails himself of, he who regards this world, including space, time, form, and movement, as falsely deduced, would have at least good reason in the end to become distrustful also of all thinking. Has it not hitherto been playing upon us the worst of scurvy tricks? And what guarantee would it give that it would not continue to do what it has always been doing. In all seriousness, the innocence of thinkers has something touching and respect-inspiring about it, which even nowadays permits them to wait upon consciousness with the request that it will give them honest answers. For example, whether it be real or not, and why it keeps the outer world so resolutely at a distance, and other questions of the same description. The belief in immediate certainties is a moral naivete which does honor to us philosophers, but we have now ceased being merely moral men. Apart from morality, such belief is a folly which does little honor to us. If in middle-class life an ever-ready distrust is regarded as the sign of a bad character, and consequently as imprudence, here among us, beyond the middle-class world and its yeas and nays, what should prevent our being imprudent in saying the philosopher has at length a right to bad character, as the being who has hitherto been most befooled on earth he is now under obligation to distrustfulness, through the wickedest squinting out of every abyss of suspicion. 
Forgive me the joke of this gloomy grimace and turn of expression, for I myself have long ago learned to think and estimate differently, with regard to deceiving and being deceived, and I keep at least a couple of pokes in the ribs ready for the blind rage with which philosophers struggle against being deceived. Why not? It is nothing more than a moral prejudice that truth is worth more than semblance. It is, in fact, the worst proof supposition in the world. So much must be conceded. There could have been no life at all except on the basis of perspective estimations and semblances. And if, with the virtuous enthusiasm and stupidity of many philosophers, one wished to do away altogether with the seeming world, well, granted, you could do that, at least nothing of your truth would thereby remain. Indeed, what is it that forces us in general to the supposition that there is an essential opposition of true and false? Is it not enough to suppose degrees of seemingness, and as it were lighter and darker shades and tones of semblances, different values, as the painters say? Why might not the world which concerns us be a fiction? And to any one who suggested, but to a fiction belongs an originator, might it not be bluntly replied, why? May this belong also belong to the fiction? Why is it not at length permitted to be a little ironical towards the subject, just as towards the predicate and object? Might not the philosopher elevate himself above faith and grammar? All respect to governesses. But is it not time that philosophy should renounce governess faith? 35. O Voltaire! O humanity! O idiocy! There is something ticklish in the truth, and the search for the truth, and if man goes about it too humanely, il n'y chérie ne vrai qui peut faire le bien. I wager he finds nothing. 36. Supposing that nothing else is given as real but our world of desires and passions, that we cannot sink or rise to any other reality but just that of our impulses, for thinking is only a relation of these impulses to one another, are we not permitted to make the attempt and to ask the question whether this which is given does not suffice, by means of our counterparts, for the understanding of the so-called mechanical or material world. I do not mean as an illusion, a semblance, a representation, in the Berkeleyan and Schopenhauerian sense, but as possessing the same degree of reality as our emotions themselves, as a more primitive form of the world of emotions, in which everything still lies locked in a mighty unity, which afterwards branches off and develops itself in organic processes, naturally also, refines and debilitates, as a kind of instinctive life in which all organic functions, including self-regulation, assimilation, nutrition, secretion, and change of matter, are still synthetically united with one another as a primary form of life. In the end, is it not only permitted to make this attempt, it is commanded by the conscience of logical method, not to assume several kinds of causality, so long as the attempt to get along with a single one has not been pushed to its furthest extent, to absurdity, if I may be allowed to say so. That is morality of method, which one may not repudiate nowadays. It follows from its definition, as mathematicians say. The question is ultimately whether we recognize the will as operating, whether we believe in the causality of this will. If we do so, and fundamentally our belief in this is just our belief in causality itself, we must make an attempt to posit hypothetically the causality of the will as the only causality. Will can naturally only operate on will, and not on matter, not on nerves, for instance. In short, the hypothesis must be hazarded whether will does not operate on will wherever effects are recognized, and whether all mechanical action, inasmuch as power operates therein, is not the power of will, the effect of will. 
Granted, finally, that we succeeded in explaining our entire instinctive life as the development and ramification of one fundamental form of will, namely the will to power, as my thesis puts it. Granted that all organic functions could be traced back to this will to power, and that the solution of this problem of generation and nutrition, it is one problem, could also be found therein. One would thus have acquired the right to define all active force unequivocally as will to power. The world seen from within, the world defined and designated according to its intelligible character, it would simply be will to power and nothing else. 37. What? Does not that mean, in popular language, God is disproved, but not the devil? On the contrary, on the contrary, my friends, and who the devil also compels you to speak popularly. 38. As happened, finally, in all the enlightenment of modern times, with the French Revolution, that terrible farce, quite superfluous when judged close to hand, into which, however, the noble and visionary spectators of all Europe have interpreted from a distance their own indignation and enthusiasm so long and passionately, until the text has disappeared under the interpretation, so a noble posterity might once more misunderstand the whole of the part, and perhaps only thereby make its aspect endurable. Or rather, has not this already happened? Have we not ourselves been that noble posterity? And, in so far as we now comprehend this, is it not thereby already passed? Th 39. Nobody will very readily regard a doctrine as true merely because it makes the people happy or virtuous, excepting perhaps the amiable idealists, who are enthusiastic about the good, true, and beautiful, and let all kinds of motley, coarse, and good-natured desirabilities swim about promiscuously in their pond. Happiness and virtue are no arguments. It is willingly forgotten, however, even on the part of thoughtful minds, that to make unhappy and to make bad are just as little counter-arguments. A thing could be true, although it were the highest degree injurious and dangerous. Indeed, the fundamental constitution of existence might be such that one succumbed by a full knowledge of it, so that the strength of a mind might be measured by the amount of truth it could endure, or speak more plainly by the extent to which it required truth attenuated, veiled, sweetened, dampened, and falsified. But there is no doubt for the discovery of certain portions of truth, the wicked and unfortunate are more favorably situated, and have greater likelihood of success, not to speak of the wicked who are happy, a species about whom moralists are silent. Perhaps severity and craft are more favorable conditions for the development of strong, independent spirits and philosophers than the gentle, refined, yielding good nature, and habit of taking things easily, which are prized, and rightly prized, in a learned man. Presupposing always, to begin with, that the term philosopher be not confined to the philosopher who writes books, or even introduces his philosophy into books. Stendhal furnishes a last feature of the portrait of the free-spirited philosopher, for which the sake of German taste I will not omit to underline, for it is opposed to German taste. Pour être bon philosophie, says this last great psychologist, il faut être sec, clair sans illusion, un banquet qui fait fortune, et une partie du caractère requis pour faire des couvertures en philosophie. Forty. Everything that is profound loves the mass. The profoundest things have a hatred even of figure and likeness. Should not the contrary only be the right disguise for the shame of a god to go about in? A question worth asking. It would be strange if some mystic has not already ventured on the same kind of thing. There are proceedings of such a delicate nature 
that it is well to overwhelm them with a coarseness and make them unrecognizable. Their actions of love and of an extravagant magnanimity, after which nothing can be wiser than to take a stick and thrash the witness soundly, one thereby obscures his recollection. Many a one is able to obscure and abuse his own memory, in order to at least have vengeance on the sole party in the secret. Shame is inventive. They are not the worst things of which one is most ashamed. There is not only deceit behind a mask, there is so much goodness and craft. I could imagine that a man with something costly and fragile to conceal would roll through life clumsily and rotundly, like an old, green, heavily hooped wine-cask, the refinement of his shame requiring it to be so. A man who has depths in his shame meets his destiny and his delicate decisions upon paths which few ever reach, and with regard to the existence of which his nearest and most intimate friends may be ignorant. His mortal danger conceals itself from their eyes, and equally so his regained security. Such a hidden nature, which instinctively employs speech for silence and concealment, and is inexhaustible in evasion of communication, desires and insists that a mask of himself shall occupy his place in the hearts and heads of his friends, and supposing he does not desire it, his eyes will some day be open to the fact that there is nevertheless a mask of him there, and that it is well to be so. Every profound spirit needs a mask. Nay, more, around every profound spirit there is continually grows a mask, owing to the constantly false, that is to say, superficial interpretation of every word he utters, every step he takes, every sign of life he manifests. 41. One must subject oneself to one's own tests that one is destined for independence and command, and do so at the right time. One must not avoid one's tests, although they constitute perhaps the most dangerous game one can play, and are in the end tests made only before ourselves and before no other judge. Not to cleave any person, but it, even the dearest. Every person is a prison and also a recess. Not to cleave to a fatherland, be it even the most suffering and necessitous, it is even less difficult to detach one's heart from a victorious fatherland. Not to cleave to sympathy, be it even for higher men, in whose peculiar torture and helplessness chance has given us an insight. Not to cleave to a science, though it tempt one with the most valuable discoveries, apparently specially reserved for us. Not to cleave to one's own liberation, to the voluptuous distance and remoteness of the bird, which always flies further aloft in order to seem more under it, the danger of the flyer. Not to cleave to our own virtues, nor become as a whole victim to any of our specialties, to our hospitality, for instance, which is the danger of dangers for highly developed and wealthy souls, who deal prodigally, almost indifferently with themselves, and push the virtue of liberality so far that it becomes a vice. One must know how to conserve oneself, the best test of independence. 42. A new order of philosophers is appearing. I shall venture to baptize them by a name not without danger. As far as I understand them, as far as they allow themselves to be understood, for it is their nature to wish to remain something of a puzzle, these philosophers of the future might rightly, perhaps also wrongly, claim to be designated as tempters. This name itself is, after all, only an attempt, or, if it be preferred, a temptation. 43. Will they be new friends of truth, these coming philosophers? Very probably, for all philosophers hitherto have loved their truths, but assuredly they will not be dogmatists. It must be contrary to their pride, and also contrary to their taste, that their truth should still be truth for every one. 
that which has hitherto been the secret wish and ultimate purpose of all dogmatic efforts. My opinion is my opinion. Another person has not easily a right to it. Such a philosopher of the future will say, perhaps, one must renounce the bad taste of wishing to agree with many people. Good is no longer good when one's neighbor takes it into his mouth. And how could there be a common good? The expression contradicts itself. That which can be common is always of small value. In the end, things must be as they are and always have been. The great things remain for the great, the abysses for the profound, the delicacies and thrills for the refined, and to sum up shortly, everything rare for the rare. 44. Need I say expressly after all this that they will be free, very free spirits, these philosophers of the future, as certainly also they will not merely free spirits, but something more, higher, greater, and fundamentally different, which does not wish to be misunderstood and mistaken. But while I say this, I feel under obligation, almost as much to them as to ourselves, we free spirits who are their heralds and forerunners, to sweep away from ourselves altogether a stupid old prejudice and misunderstanding, which, like a fog, has too long made the conception of a free spirit obscure. In every country of Europe, and the same in America, there is at present something which makes an abuse of this name a very narrow, prepossessed, and chained class of spirits who desire almost the opposite of what our intentions and instincts prompt, not to mention that in respect to the new philosophers who are appearing, they must still more be closed windows and bolted doors. Briefly and regrettably, they belong to levelers. These wrongly named free spirits, as glib-tongued and scribe-fingered slaves of the democratic taste and its modern ideals, all of them men without solitude, without personal solitude, blunt, honest fellows to whom neither courage nor honorable contact ought to be denied, only they are not free, and are ludicrously superficial, especially in their innate partiality for seeing the cause of almost all human misery and failure in the old forms in which society has hitherto existed, a notion which happily inverts the truth entirely. What they would fain attain with all their strength is the universal green-meadowed happiness of the herd, together with security, safety, comfort, and alleviation of life for everyone. Their two most frequently chanted songs and doctrines are called equality of rights and sympathy with all sufferers, and suffering itself is looked upon by them as something which must be done away with. We opposite ones, however, who have opened our eye and conscience to the question how and where the plant man has hitherto grown most vigorously, believe that this has always taken place under the opposite conditions, that for this end the dangerousness of his situation has to be increased enormously. His inventive faculty and dissembling power, his spirit, had to develop into subtlety and daring under long oppression and compulsion, and his will to life had to be increased to the unconditioned will to power. We believe that severity, violence, slavery, danger in the street and in the heart, secrecy, stoicism, tempter's art, and devilry of every kind, that everything wicked, terrible, tyrannical, predatory, and serpentine in man serves as well for the elevation of the human species as its opposite. We do not even say enough when we only say this much, and in any case we find ourselves here, both with our speech and our silence, at the other extreme of all modern ideology and gregarious desirability, as their antipodes, perhaps. What wonder that we free spirits are not the, exactly the most communicative spirits, that we do not wish to betray in every respect what a spirit can free itself from, and where perhaps it will then be driven. And as to the import of the dangerous formula, beyond good and evil, with which we at least avoid confusion, we are something else than libre pensure, 
Liben Pensatori, free thinkers, and whatever else these honest advocates of modern ideas like to call themselves, having been at home, or at least guests, in many realms of the spirit, having escaped again and again from the gloomy, agreeable nooks in which preferences and prejudices, youth, origin, and accident of men and books, or even the weariness of travel seem to confine us, full of malice against the seductions of dependence which he concealed in honors, money, positions, or exaltations of the senses, grateful even for the distress and vicissitudes of illness, because they always free us from, from some rule and its prejudice, grateful to the god, devil, sheep, and worm in us, inquisitive to a fault, investigators to the point of cruelty, with unhesitating fingers for the intangible, with teeth and stomachs for the most indigestible, ready for any business that requires satiety and acute senses, ready for every adventure owing to an ex excess of free will, with anterior and posterior souls, into the ultimate intentions of which it is difficult to pry, with foregrounds and backgrounds to the end of which no foot may run, hidden ones under the mantles of light, appropriators, although we resemble heirs and spendthrifts, arrangers and collectors from morning till night, misers of our wealth and full crammed drawers, economical in learning and forgetting, inventive in scheming, sometimes proud of tables of categories, sometimes pendants, sometimes night owls of work even in full day, yea, if necessary, even scarecrows. And it is necessary nowadays, that is to say, inasmuch as we are the born, sworn, jealous friends of solitude, of our own profoundest midnight and midday solitude, such kind of men are we, we free spirits. And perhaps ye are also something of the same kind, ye coming ones, ye new philosophers. End chapter 2 Beyond Good and Evil By Frederick Wilhelm Nietzsche This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Beyond Good and Evil by Frederick Nietzsche. Translation by Helen Zimmerman. Chapter 3 The Religious Mood. 45. The Human Soul and Its Limits. The range of a man's inner experiences, hitherto attained the heights, depths, and distances of these experiences, the entire history of the soul up to the present time, and its still unexhausted possibilities. This is the preordained hunting domain for a born psychologist and lover of a big hunt. But how often must he say despairingly to himself, a single individual, alas, only a single individual, and this great forest, this virgin forest. So he would like to have some hundreds of hunting assistants and fine trained hounds that he could send into the history of the human soul to drive his game together. In vain, again and again, he experiences profoundly and bitterly, how difficult it is to find assistance and dogs for all the things that directly excite his curiosity. The evil of sending scholars into new and dangerous hunting domains 
where courage, sagacity, and subtlety in every sense are required, is that there are no longer serviceable just when the big hunt and also the great danger commences. It is precisely then that they lose their keen eye and nose. In order, for instance, to divine and determine what sort of history the problem of knowledge and conscience has hitherto had in the souls of homines religiosi, a person would perhaps himself have to process a profound, as bruised, as immense an experience as the intellectual conscience of Pascal, and then he would still require that widespread heaven of clear, wicked spirituality which from above would be able to oversee, arrange, and effectively formulize this mass of dangerous and painful experiences. But who would do me this service? And who would have time to wait for such servants? They evidently appear too rarely, they are so improbable at all times. Eventually one must do everything oneself in order to know something which means that one has much to do. But a curiosity like mine is once for all the most agreeable of vices. Pardon me, I mean to say that the love of truth has its reward in heaven and already upon earth. 46. Faith such as early Christianity desired and not infrequently achieved in the midst of a skeptical and southernly free-spirited world, which had centuries of struggle between philosophical schools behind it and in it, counting besides the education and tolerance which the Imperium Romanum gave. This faith is not that sincere, austere, slave faith by which perhaps a Luther or a Cromwell or some other northern barbarian of the spirit remained attached to his God and Christianity. It is much rather the faith of Pascal, which resembles in a terrible manner a continuous suicide of reason, a tough, long-lived, worm-like reason which is not to be slain at once and with a single blow. The Christian faith from the beginning is sacrifice the sacrifice of all freedom, all pride, all self-confidence of spirit. It is the same time, subjection, self-derision, and self-mutilation. There is cruelty and religious Phoenicianism in this faith, which is adapted to a tender, many-sided, and very fastidious conscience. It takes for granted that the subjection of the spirit is indescribably painful that all the past and all the habits of such a spirit resist the absurdism in the form of which faith comes to it. Modern men with their obtuseness as regards all Christian nomenclature have no longer the sense for the terribly superlative conception which was implied to an antique taste by the paradox of the formula, God on the Cross. Hitherto there had never and nowhere been such boldness in inversion, nor anything at once so dreadful, questioning and questionable as this formula. It promised a transvaluation of all ancient values. It was the Orient, the profound Orient, 
It was the Oriental slave who thus took revenge on Rome and its noble, light-minded toleration, on the Roman Catholicism of non-faith, and it was always not the faith, but the freedom from the faith, the half-stoical and smiling indifference to the seriousness of the faith, which made the slaves indignant at their masters and revolt against them. Enlightenment causes revolt, for the slave desires the unconditioned, he understands nothing but the tyrannous, even in morals, he loves as he hates without nuance, to the very depths, to the point of pain, to the point of sickness. His many hidden sufferings make him revolt against the noble taste which seems to deny suffering. The skepticism with regard to suffering, fundamentally only an attitude of aristocratic morality, was not the least of the causes, also the last great slave insurrection which began with the French Revolution. 47. Whenever the religious neurosis has appeared on the earth so far, we find it connected with three dangerous prescriptions as to regimen, solitude, fasting, and sexual abstinence, but without its being possible to determine with certainty which is cause and which is effect, or if any relation at all of cause and effect exists there. This latter doubt is justified by the fact that one of the most regular symptoms among savage as well as among civilized peoples is the most sudden and excessive sensuality, which then with equal suddenness transforms into penitential paroxysms, world renunciation and will renunciation, both symptoms perhaps explainable as disguised epilepsy. But nowhere is it more obligatory to put aside explanations around no other type has there grown such a mass of absurdity and superstition. No other type seems to have been more interesting to men and even to philosophers. Perhaps it is time to become just a little indifferent here, to learn caution, or better still to look away, to go away. Yet in the background of the most recent philosophy, that of Schopenhauer, we find most as the problem in itself, this terrible note of interrogation of the religious crisis and awakening. How is the negation of will possible? How is the saint possible? That seems to have been the very question with which Schopenhauer made a start and became a philosopher. And thus it was genuine Schopenhauerian consequence that his most convinced adherent, perhaps also his last as far as Germany is concerned, namely Richard Wagner, should bring his own life work to an end just here, and should finally put that terrible and eternal type upon the stage as country, type Vecu, and it is loved and lived at the very time that the mad doctors in almost all European countries had an opportunity to study the type close at hand, wherever the religious neurosis, or as I call it, the religious mood, made its latest epidemical outbreak and display as the Salvation Army. If it be in question, however, as to what has been so extremely interesting to men of all sorts, in all ages, and even to philosophers, 
in the whole phenomenon of the state. It is undoubtedly the appearance of the miraculous therein, namely the immediate succession of opposites, of states of the soul regarded as morally antithetical. It was believed here to be self-evident that the bad man was all at once turned into a saint, a good man. The hitherto existing psychology was wrecked at this point. Is it not possible it may have happened principally because psychology had placed itself under the dominion of morals, because it believed in oppositions of moral values, and saw, read, and interpreted these oppositions into the text and facts of the case? What? Miracle? Only an error of interpretation? A lack of philology? 48. It seems that the Latin races are far more deeply attached to their Catholicism than we Northerners are to Christianity generally, and that consequently unbelief in Catholic countries means something quite different from what it does among Protestants, namely, a sort of revolt against the spirit of the race, while with us it is rather a return to the spirit, or non-spirit of the race. We Northerners undoubtedly derive our origin from barbarous races. Even as regards our talents for religion, we have poor talents for it. One may make an exception in the case of the Celts, who have theretofore furnished also the best soil for Christian infection in the North. The Christian ideal blossomed forth in France as much as ever the pale sun of the North would allow it. How strangely pious for our taste are still these later French skeptics, wherever there is any Celtic blood in their origin. How Catholic, how un-German does Auguste Comte's sociology seem to us, with the Roman logic of its instincts. How Jesuitical, that amiable and shrewd Cicerone of Port Royal, Saint Beuve, in spite of all his hostility to Jesuits and even Ernest Renan. How inaccessible to us northerners does the language of such a Renan appear, in whom every instant the merest touch of religious thrill throws his refined, voluptuous, and comfortable couching soul off its balance. Let us repeat after him these fine sentences, and what wickedness and haughtiness is immediately aroused by way of answer in our probably less beautiful but harder souls that is to say, in our more German souls. De sons donc harimen, que la religion est un produit de l'homme normal, que l'homme est le plus dans le quand il est, le plus religieux et le plus assure d'un testi infini. C'est quand il est bon qu'il que la vertu correspond à un ordre éternel, c'est quand il contemple les choses d'une manière. Destresse qu'il trouve la mort révolte et absurde, comment ne pas supposer que c'est dans ces mondes laquelle l'homme voit le mieux. These sentences are so extremely antipodal to my ears and habits of thought, that in my first impulse of rage on finding them I wrote on the margin, La nascere religious par excellence, 
until in my later rage I even took a fancy to them. These sentences with their truth absolutely inverted. It is so nice and such a distinction to have one's own antipodes. 49. That which is so astonishing in the religious life of the ancient Greeks is the irrestrainable stream of gratitude which it pours forth. It is a very superior kind of man who takes such an attitude towards nature and life. Later on, when the populace got the upper hand in Greece, fear became so rampant also in religion, and Christianity was preparing itself. 50. The passion for God, there are churlish, honest-hearted, and importune kinds of it. Like that of Luther, the whole of Protestantism lacks the southern delicatesa. There is an oriental exaltation of the mind in it, like that of an undeservedly favored or elevated slave, as in the case of St. Augustine, for instance, who lacks in an offensive manner all nobility in bearing and desires. There is a feminine tenderness and sensuality in it, which modestly and unconsciously longs for an unio mystica et physica, as in the case of Madame de Guin. In many cases it appears, curiously enough, as the disguise of a girl's or a youth's puberty. Here and there, even in the hysteria of an old maid, also as her last ambition, the church has frequently canonized the woman in such a case. 51. The mightiest men have hitherto always bowed reverently before the saint, as the enigma of self-subjugation and utter voluntary privation. Why did they thus bow? They divined in him, and as it were behind the questionableness of his frail and wretched appearance, the superior force which wished to test itself by such a subjugation. The strength of will in which they recognized their own strength and love of power, and knew how to honor it. They honored something in themselves when they honored the saint. In addition to this, the contemplation of the saint suggested to them a suspicion, such an enormity of self-negation and anti-naturalness will not have been coveted for nothing. They have said inquiringly, there is perhaps a reason for it, some very great danger, about which the ecstatic might wish to be more accurately informed through his secret interlocutors and visitors. In a word, the mighty ones of the world learned to have a new fear before him. They divined a new power, a strange, still unconquered enemy. It was the will to power, which obliged them to halt before the saint. They had to question him. 52. In the Jewish Old Testament, the Book of Divine Justice, there are men, things, and sayings on such an immense scale that Greek and Indian literature has nothing to compare with it. One stands with fear and reverence before those stupendous remains of what man was formerly, and one has sad thoughts about old Asia and its little outpushed peninsula Europe, which would like, by all means, to figure before Asia as the progress of mankind. 
To be sure, he who himself, only a slender, tame house animal, and knows only the wants of a house animal, like our cultured people of today, including the Christians of cultured Christianity, need neither be amazed nor even sad amid those ruins. The taste for the Old Testament is a touchstone with respect to great and small. Perhaps he will find that the New Testament, the Book of Grace, still appeals more to his heart. There is much of the odor of the genuine, tender, stupid beadsman and petty soul in it. To have bound up this New Testament, a kind of rococo of taste in every respect, along with the Old Testament into one book as the Bible, as the book in itself, is perhaps the greatest audacity and sin against the spirit which literary Europe has upon its conscience. 53. Why Atheism Nowadays? The Father in God is thoroughly refuted, equally so the judge, the rewarder, also his free will. He does not hear, and even if he did, he would not know how to help. The worst is that he seems incapable of communicating himself clearly. Is he uncertain? This is what I have made out, by questioning and listening at a variety of conversations to be the cause of the decline of European theism. It appears to me that though the religious instinct is in vigorous growth, it rejects the theistic satisfaction with profound distrust. 54. What does all modern philosophy do? Since Descartes, and indeed more in defiance of him than on the basis of his procedure, an attentat has been made on the part of all philosophers on the old conception of the soul. Under the guise of a criticism of the subject and predicate conception that it is to say, an attentat on the fundamental presupposition of Christian doctrine, modern philosophy, as an epistemological skepticism, is secretly or openly anti-Christian, although for keener ears be it said, by no means anti-religious. Formerly, in effect, one believed in the soul as one believed in grammar and the grammatical subject. One said I is the condition, think is the predicate, and is conditioned. To think is an activity for which one must suppose a subject as cause. The attempt was then made with marvelous tenacity and subtlety to see if one could not get out of this net, to see if the opposite was not perhaps true. Think the condition, and I the conditioned. I therefore only a synthesis which has been made by thinking itself. Kant really wished to prove that, starting from the subject. The subject could not be proved nor the object either. The possibility of an apparent existence of the subject, and therefore of the soul, may not always have been strange to him. The thought that once an immense power on earth, as the vendetta philosophy. 55. There is a great ladder of religious cruelty, with many rounds, but three of these are the most important. 
once on a time men sacrificed human beings to their god, and perhaps just those they loved the best. To this category belong the firstling sacrifices of all primitive religions, and also the sacrifice of the emperor Tiberius in the Mithra Grotto on the island of Capri, that most terrible of all Roman anachronisms. Then, during the immoral epoch of mankind, they sacrificed their god the strongest instincts they possessed, their nature. This festal joy shines in the cruel glances of ascetics and anti-natural fanatics. Finally, what still remained to be sacrificed? Was it not necessary in the end for men to sacrifice everything, comforting, holy, healing, all hope, all faith in hidden harmonies, in future blessedness and justice? Was it not necessary to sacrifice God himself, and out of cruelty to themselves to worship stone, stupidity, gravity, fate, nothingness? To sacrifice God for nothingness, this paradoxical mystery of the ultimate cruelty has been reserved for the rising generation. We all know something, therefore, already. 56. Whoever, like myself, prompted by some enigmatical desire, has long endeavored to go to the bottom of the question of pessimism, and free it from the half-Christian, half-German narrowness and stupidity in which it has finally presented itself to this century, namely, in the form of Schopenhauer's philosophy. Whoever, with an Asiatic and super-Asiatic eye, has actually looked inside and into the most world-renouncing of all possible modes of thought, beyond good and evil, and no longer like Buddha and Schopenhauer, under the dominion and delusion of morality, whoever has done this, has perhaps just thereby, without really desiring it, opened his eyes to behold the opposite ideal. The ideal of the most world-approving, exuberant, and vivacious man, who has not only learnt to compromise and arrange with that which was and is, but wishes to have it again as it was and is for all eternity, insatiably calling out to Capo not only to himself, but to the whole peace and play, and not only the play, but actually to him who requires the play and makes it necessary, because he always requires himself anew and makes himself necessary. What? And this would not be Circulus Vitius Deus? 57. The distance, and as it were the space around man, grows with the strength of his intellectual vision and insight. His world becomes profounder, new stars, new enigmas, and notions are ever coming into view. Perhaps everything on which the intellectual eye has exercised its acuteness and profundity has just been an occasion for its exercise, something of a game, something for children and childish minds. Perhaps the most solemn conceptions have caused the most fighting and suffering. The conceptions God and sin will one day seem to us of no more importance than a child's plaything or a child's pain seems to an old man. And perhaps another plaything and another pain will be then necessary once more for the old man, always childish enough an eternal child. D8. 
Has it been observed to what extent outward idleness or semi-idleness is necessary to a religious life, alike for its favorite microscopic labor of self-examination, and for its soft placidity called prayer, the state of perpetual readiness for the coming of God? I mean the idleness with a good conscience, the idleness of olden times and of blood, to which the aristocratic sentiment that work is dishonoring, that it vulgarizes the body and soul, is it not quite unfamiliar? And that consequently the modern, noisy, time-engrossing, conceited, foolishly proud laboriousness educates and prepares for unbelief more than anything else? Among these, for instance, who are at present living apart from a religion in Germany, I find freethinkers of diversified species and origin, but above all a majority of those in whom laboriousness from generation to generation was dissolved the religious instincts, so that they no longer know what purpose religions serve, and only note their existence in the world with a kind of dull astonishment. They feel themselves already fully occupied, these good people, be it by their business or by their pleasures, not to mention the fatherland, and the newspapers and their family duties. It seems that they have no time whatever left for religion, and above all, it is not obvious to them whether it is a question of a new business or a new pleasure, for it is impossible, they say to themselves, that people should go to church merely to spoil their tempers. They are by no means enemies of religious customs, should certain circumstances, state affairs perhaps, require their participation in such customs. They do what is required as so many things are done, with a patient and unassuming seriousness, and without much curiosity or discomfort. They live too much apart and outside to feel even the necessity for a for or against in such matters. Among those indifferent persons may be reckoned nowadays the majority of German Protestants of the middle classes, especially in the great laborious centers of trade and commerce. Also the majority of laborious scholars and the entire university personnel, with the exception of the theologians, whose existence and possibility there always gives psychologists new and more subtle puzzles to solve. On the part of pious or merely church-going people, there is seldom any idea of how much goodwill, one might say arbitrary will, is now necessary for a German scholar to take the problem of religion seriously. His whole profession, and as I have said his whole workmanlike laboriousness, to which he is compelled by his modern conscience, inclines him to a lofty and almost charitable serenity as regards religion with which is occasionally mingled a slight disdain for the uncleanliness of spirit, which he takes for granted wherever any one still professes to belong to the church. It is only with the help of history, not through his own personal experience, therefore, that the scholar succeeds in bringing himself to a respectful seriousness, and to a certain timid difference in presence of religions. But even when his sentiments have reached the stage of gratitude towards them, he is not personally advanced one step nearer to that which still maintains itself as church or as piety. Perhaps even the contrary, the practical indifference to religious matters in the midst of which he has been born and brought up, 
usually sublimates itself in his case into circumspension and cleanliness, which shuns contact with religious men and things. And it may just be the depth of his tolerance and humanity which prompts him to avoid the delicate trouble which tolerance itself brings with it. Every age has its own divine type of naivete, for the discovery of which other ages may envy it. And how much naivete, adorable, childlike, and foolish, boundlessly foolish naivete is involved in this belief of the scholar in his superiority, in the good conscience of his tolerance, in the unsuspecting, simple certainty with which his instinct treats the religious man as a lower and less valuable type, beyond, before, and above which he himself has developed, he, the little arrogant dwarf and mob man, the sedulously alert, head and hand drudge of ideas, of modern ideas. 59. Whoever has seen deeply into the world has doubtless divined what wisdom there is in the fact that men are superficial. It is their preservative instinct that teaches them to be flighty, lightsome, and false. Here and there one finds a passionate and exaggerated adoration of pure forms, in philosophers as well as in artists. It is not to be doubted that whoever has need of the cult of the superficial, to that extent, has at one time or another made an unlucky dive beneath it. Perhaps there is even an order of rank with respect to those burnt children, the born artists who find the enjoyment of life only in trying to falsify its image, as if taking wearisome revenge on it. One might guess to what degree life has disgusted them, by the extent to which they wish to see its image falsified, attenuated, ultrified, and deified. One might reckon that homines relogisi among the artists as their highest rank. It is the profound, suspicious fear of an incurable pessimism which compels whole centuries to fasten their teeth into a religious interpretation of existence. The fear of the instinct which divines a truth might be attained too soon, before man has become strong enough, hard enough, artist enough. Piety, the life in God, regarded in this light, would appear as the most elaborate and ultimate product of the fear of truth, as artist adoration and artist intoxication in presence of the most logical of all falsifications, as the will to the inversion of truth to untruth at any price. Perhaps there has hitherto been no more effective means of beautifying man than piety. By means of it man can become so artful, so superficial, so iridescent, and so good, that his appearance no longer offends. Paragraph 60 To love mankind for God's sake this has so far been the noblest and remotest sentiment to which mankind has attained, that love to mankind without any redeeming intention to the background is only an additional folly and brutishness, that the inclination to this love has first to get its proportion, its delicacy, its gram of salt and sprinkling of abergis, from an higher inclination, whoever first perceived and experienced this. However, his tongue may have stammered as it attempted to express such a delicate matter. Let him for all time be holy and respected, 
as the man who has so far flown highest and gone astray in the finest fashion. Paragraph 61 The philosopher, as we free spirits understand him, as the man of the greatest responsibility, who has the conscience for the general development of mankind, will use religion for his disciplining and educating work, just as he will use the contemporary political and economic conditions. The selecting and disciplining influence, destructive as well as creative, and fashioning, which can be exercised by means of religion is manifold and varied, according to the sort of people placed under its spell and protection. For those who are strong and independent, destined and trained to command in whom the judgment and skill of a ruling race is incorporated, religion is an additional means for overcoming resistance in the exercise of authority, as a bond which binds rulers and subjects in common, betraying and surrendering to the former the conscience of the latter, their innermost heart, which would fain escape obedience. And in the case of the unique natures of noble origin, if by virtue of superior spirituality they should incline to a more retired and contemplative life, reserving to themselves only the more refined forms of government, over chosen disciples or members of an order, religion itself may be used as a means for obtaining peace from the noise and trouble of managing grosser affairs, and for securing immunity from the unavoidable filth of all political agitation. The Brahmins, for instance, understood this fact. With the help of a religious organization, they secured to themselves the power of nominating kings for the people, while their sentiments prompted them to keep apart and outside as men with a higher and super-regal mission. At the same time, religion gives inducement and opportunity to some of the subjects to qualify themselves for future ruling and commanding the slowly ascending ranks and classes in which, through fortunate marriage customs, volitional power and delight in self-control are on the increase. To them, religion offers sufficient incentives and temptations to aspire to higher intellectuality, and to experience the sentiments of, th of authoritative self-control, of silence and of solitude. Asceticism and Puritanism are almost indispensable means of educating and ennobling a race which seeks to rise above its heredity, baseness, and work itself upwards to future supremacy. And finally, to ordinary men, to the majority of the people who exist for service and general utility, and are only so far entitled to exist, religion gives invaluable contentedness with their lot and condition, peace of heart, ennoblement of obedience, additional social happiness and sympathy, with something of transfiguration and embellishment, something of justification of all commonplaceness, all the meanness, all the semi-annual poverty of their souls. Religion, together with the religious significance of life, sheds sunshine over such perpetually harassed men, and makes even their own aspect endurable to them. It operates upon them as the Epicurean philosophy usually operates upon sufferers of a higher order, in a refreshing and refining manner, almost turning suffering to account, and in the end, even hollowing and vindicating it. There is perhaps nothing so admirable in Christianity and Buddhism as their art of teaching even the lowest, 
to elevate themselves by piety to seemingly higher order of things, and thereby to retain their satisfaction with the actual world in which they find it difficult enough to live, this very difficult being necessary. Paragraph 62. To be sure, to make also the bad counter-reckoning against such religions, and to bring to light their secret dangers. The cost is always excessive and terrible when religions do not operate as an educational and disciplinary medium in the hands of the philosopher, but rule voluntarily and paramountly when they wish to be the final end, and not a means along with other means. Among men as among all other animals, there is a surplus of defective, diseased, degenerating, infirm and necessarily suffering individuals. The successful cases, among men also, are always the exception, and in view of the fact that man is the animal not yet properly adapted to his environment, the rare exception. But worse still, the higher the type of man represents, the greater is the improbability that he will succeed. The accidental the law of irrationality in the general constitution of mankind manifests itself most terribly in its destructive effect on the higher orders of men, the conditions of whose lives are delicate, diverse, and difficult to determine. What then is the attitude of the two greatest religions above mentioned to the surplus of failures in life? They endeavor to preserve and keep alive whatever can be preserved. In fact, as the religions for sufferers, they take the part of these upon principle. They are always in favor of those who suffer from life as from a disease, and they would fain treat every other experience of life as false and impossible. However highly we may esteem this indulgent and preservative care, inasmuch as in applying to others, it has supplied and applies also to the highest and usually the most suffering type of man. The hitherto paramount religions, to give a general appreciation of them, are among the principal causes which have kept the type of man upon a lower level. They have preserved too much that which should have perished. One has to thank them for invaluable services, and who is sufficiently rich in gratitude not to feel poor at the contemplation of all that the spiritual men of Christianity have done for Europe hitherto. But when they had given comfort to the sufferers, courage to the oppressed and despairing, a staff and support to the helpless, and when they had allured from society into covenants and spiritual penitentiaries the broken-hearted and distracted, what else had they to do in order to work systematically in that fashion, and with a good conscience for the preservation of all the sick and suffering? which means, indeed in truth, to work for the deterioration of the European race, to reverse all estimates of value. That is what they had to do. And to shatter the strong, to spoil great hopes, to cast suspicion on the delight in beauty, to break down everything autonomous, manly, conquering, and imperious, all instincts which are natural to the highest and most successful type of man into uncertainty, distress of conscience, and self-destruction. Forsooth to invert all love of the earth and of supremacy over the earth into hatred of the earth and earthly things. That 
is the task the church imposed on itself, and was obliged to impose until, according to its standard of value, unworldliness, unsensuousness, and higher man fused into one sentiment. If one could observe the strangely painful, equally coarse and refined comedy of European Christianity, with the derisive and impartial eye of an Epicurean god, I should think one would never cease marveling and laughing. Does it not actually seem that some single will has ruled over Europe for eighteen centuries, in order to make a sublime abortion of man? He, however, who with opposite requirements no longer Epicurean, and with some divine hammer in his hand, could approach this almost voluntary degeneration and stunting of mankind, as exemplified in the European Christian, Pascal for instance, would he not have to cry aloud with rage, pity, and horror? O oh, you bunglers, presumptuous, pitiful bunglers, what have you done? Was that a work for your hands? How you have hacked and botched my finest stone! What have you presumed to do? I should say that Christianity has hitherto been the most portentous of presumptions. Men not great enough nor hard enough to be entitled as artists to take part in fashioning man, men not sufficiently strong and far-sighted to allow, with sublime self-constraint, the obvious law of the thousandfold failures and perishings to prevail, men not sufficiently noble to see the radically different grades of rank and intervals of rank that separate man from man, such men, with their quality before God, have hitherto swayed the destiny of Europe, until at last a dwarfed, almost ludicrous species has been produced, a gregarious animal, something obligingly sickly, mediocre, the European of the present day. End of chapter 3